0: Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Muscle For Life. I'm Mike Matthews. Thanks for joining me today for something that is a little bit different. I do this every now and then when I think it's appropriate. And here is another one of those times. So a couple of weeks ago, I went on another podcast. I went on the Tailored Life podcast, which is hosted by my buddy Cody McBroom. And instead of talking about the stuff I normally talk about, like how to pick heavy things up and put them down and how to not eat like an asshole, we talked about entrepreneurship and marketing and business in general. And whenever I release content along those lines, whenever I write about those things or speak about those things, I always get good feedback because I have a lot of entrepreneurs in my orbit. I have a lot of people who own businesses or who are thinking of starting businesses or who work at a business, who work at a company and are happy to keep doing that, but who are striving to accomplish more in their career. And a lot of the principles that allow you to succeed as an entrepreneur apply just as much to someone who wants to succeed in a business, working for somebody else's business. For example, a very viable path to both meaningful work, work that satisfies you, that you generally enjoy doing, as well as financial success, is to become an intrapreneur. Meaning somebody with an entrepreneurial type of spirit who doesn't want to own their own business, but who would like to own in the sense of responsibility, a piece of a business, maybe an entire department, maybe it's the marketing department, for example, where they are going to uh, preside over an array of activities that produce something very valuable to the business. And that person is going to treat that part of the business like it's their own business coming up with new ideas and always looking to move things forward, both personally and for the area of the business business that they are in charge of. Anyway, as content that I've released in the past along those lines has always done well, I thought I would post up this interview, again that I did on another podcast, on my podcast, because it is in the same vein. In this interview, Cody and I talk about the myth of overnight success stories. We talk about how to deal with impatience. I am by my nature a pretty impatient person, and that's something I've had to force myself to get better at. We talk about reasons why you may not want to start a business, why it may make more sense to work in another company or for someone else. And that ultimately may allow you to, again, be more satisfied with your work and earn more money Uh, we talk about work-life balance and dealing with stress and particularly in the context of parenting which is something i now have a bit of experience with i have two kids an eight-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter Uh, cody and i talk about self-care routines Uh, i talk about why i don't meditate that's something i get asked about fairly often actually and more Also, if you like what I'm doing here on the podcast and elsewhere, definitely check out my health and fitness books, including the number one best-selling weightlifting books for men and women in the world, Bigger, Leaner, Stronger, and Thinner, Leaner, Stronger, as well as the leading flexible dieting cookbook, The Shredded Chef. Now, these books have sold well over 1 million copies and have helped thousands of people build their best body ever, and you can find them on all major online retailers like Audible, Amazon, iTunes, Kobo, and Google Play, as well as in select Barnes & Noble stores. And I should also mention that you can get any of the audiobooks 100% free when you sign up for an Audible account and this is a great way to make those pockets of downtime like commuting, meal prepping and cleaning more interesting, entertaining and productive. And so if you want to take Audible up on this offer and if you want to get one of my audiobooks for free, just go to www.buylegion that's b u y legion.com/audible and sign up for your account. So again, if you appreciate my work and if you want to see more of it and if you want to learn time-proven, and evidence-based strategies for losing fat, building muscle, and getting healthy, and strategies that work for anyone and everyone, regardless of age or circumstances, please do consider picking up one of my best-selling books, Bigger, Leaner, Stronger for Men, Thinner, Leaner, Stronger for Women, and The Shredded Chef for my favorite fitness-friendly recipes.
1: All right, dude. So, like I said, you're uh, the most frequently returning guest, as far as I can remember. We're almost on episode six hundred, but I'm I'm pretty sure that that's the case. Um, but I'm excited for this one because, like, like I told you, I want to take it a different see route.
0: If I can, let's see if I can uh, earn my my or uh, my my uh, my invitation.
1: Yeah, uh, I think I think you will, man. I think because I've heard you talk on this stuff, maybe. And, and I haven't probably listened to every single interview you've done. You've done so many, but I've only heard you talk on this like a few times and it, and it tends to be the ones that I'm like most excited for when I see your interview and I see the title and I'm like, and maybe it's because I've been in this industry a long time, but people ask me often yeah. too, like, you know, who do you follow or look up to from a business perspective? And a lot of times it's not necessarily other online coaching companies doing exactly what I do, uh, which is a good yep. tip for people. Like you shouldn't just follow the people doing your thing. You're in my industry, but you're mainly a supplement company. But I, from your content to marketing, to branding, to your philosophy on like longevity, all those kind of things, it's something that's always resonated with me. And I've always kind of, for the last few years, at least just followed and watched and, and really like you've, you've kind of been a trailblazer for a lot of the actions I've taken. So for one, thank you for that. and And, and you have been a role model, but because uh, I want to use this podcast to talk about that shit, because usually we talk about fitness and how to be evidence-based and stuff like that, which tends to be more simple than people realize. Um, So the first thing I want to talk about is, is just like patience with it all. You know, like when I think of your development and going from being an Amazon author to what you're doing now and how long that's probably taken. And although it seems like, for some people, like you blew up or you grew quick or it hasn't been that long. I'm sure you feel like it's probably been a really long fucking time.
0: Um, it feels like it's taken too long.
1: Yeah. And, and so like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I mean, people not being patient enough, how, how, like, did you have to remind yourself throughout the process to be more patient? Like, how important is that?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a, a good topic because I am naturally an impatient person and a lot of successful people I know are the exact same way. Yeah, and, and some very successful people I know, you know, nine figure net worth people are extremely impatient. This is something I wouldn't say they struggle with. They just have to be aware of because if they don't keep it in check, it will cause problems. Mm-hmm. It, it will cause problems with personnel, for example, or they then railing mm-hmm. on employees for not getting things done as quickly as they want them to get done when there actually is no way to get it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there, there are, there are constraints of reality. I mean, we all do have to at least sleep and like poop and eat food and stuff. And if we're going to maintain some health and wellness, we have to also exercise and get outside and have a social life to some degree. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that, that is one thing I'll just throw out there quickly. And then, uh, I want to jump just to this point of this, this like overnight kind of success sensation, just quickly comment on that, that that is always an illusion. Almost always, of course you can find the exception. You can find like, I don't know, maybe Justin Bieber, wasn't he just a, a, some kid on YouTube and then the right person found him and like, you know, a year later, he's Justin Bieber or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, it can happen. But in business, that almost never happens. It is almost always what you just alluded to, which is a lot of work, a lot of grind, and eventually things reach that critical mass. And then you can see exponential growth. and, And then more and more people start hearing about you or start coming across your work or your products or whatever. And it appears like you were nothing Nowhere doing nothing to just oh wow that's the next it guy or the next it girl, uh, but that's that's again that's almost never how it how the 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 illusion is not the reality right but um, but anyways coming back to this patience patience point I am again I'm an impatient person by nature I want things done quickly there's an objective analytical side to that in that speed is extremely Powerful in business, it's a it's a force multiplier. It's one of those those quote unquote little things that has that 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 it has a disproportionately large effect on your success. The faster you can get things done, the faster you can seize on opportunities. The faster you can put out fires and uh, fill in holes in the business and so forth. The faster you can win. And uh, I mean, that that's probably something that's, a, I could go on a long tangent on that, but that's just a, that, that is a true, just a basic kind of maxim of business, right? So I come to my work with that, uh, at least looking through that lens. I mean, there may be other things that go into it, but that's a major priority for me is getting things done quickly and not getting stuck in perfectionism, for example, where things take a lot longer than they needed to take because I have to get every little detail right before I even know it's a good idea, for example. So I also have to balance that with my <laughs> impatience. And um, so for for me, what I've what I've tried to do is, is be, so in my, in, when I'm planning, right, I, I try to, to, to think with, okay, what am I trying to do here? And what is a, a realistic estimate of, let's say, time and resources that it's going to take to get this done and then double the time and, cut the, the, the proposed ROI, and that may not be financial, depends what we're talking about, but like what's the outcome that I think is a conservative estimate, cut that in half. So double the time uh, that it's gonna take and the money, if we're talking about money as well, and cut the conservative estimate of the result in half. And then think uh, with those numbers, with that scenario, do I still wanna do this or not? Does it still make sense to do it or not? And so that's saved me from committing myself to projects that, because what I don't want is I don't want to get into the middle of something and then start questioning the cost of the opportunity. Like, uh, should I be doing this? Cause that makes my impatience go out of control, right? Where I'm like, all right, now I really just want to get this thing done. Cause I don't even know if this was worth doing in the first place. And there are so many other things I could be doing. Right. And so I've found that by working a little bit more on the front end before I commit myself or any of my the people who work with me or or commit money or whatever that i i've done my due diligence so to speak in the past i was quicker to just go with my kind of gut instincts of oh yeah that's a good idea we should just do that and then go and do it sometimes it worked out sometimes it did not and so that's one thing that has helped me and another thing is uh, this is more just a kind of dealing with the emotion of impatience is now that i'm in the middle of a process and i've done my my initial work and on why I think this is a good idea, and I haven't changed my mind there haven't there hasn't been like some market shift in circumstances that makes me have to now redo that basically of of okay, I don't want to just put more money after bad. You know what I mean? I don't Mm -hmm. want to keep going on something just because I said I'm going to do it. It needs to keep making sense. So let's say it, it is making sense and it's not getting as done. It's not getting done as quickly as possible. And what aggravates me the most in that scenario is when I start thinking about what could be happening if it were done right now. Like if I had this book out right now, I could be selling X number of more copies and I know what that does strategically and it you know brings more uh, attention to Legion. And uh, so there's that element of it. And then there's the element of uh, maybe a little bit of like a, a fear that the the opportunity is going to disappear by mm-hmm. the time I actually am done, right? Like it might be too late, or um, or it may just not go very well because it's been three months, and who knows, circumstances can change. And so, in my experience, what I've learned is that those kind of worst case scenarios, uh, even though maybe that's not a worst case scenario, but that's a, that's a bad bad case scenario they don't seem to happen nearly as often if we, if I were to look at it in terms of like actual probability, emotionally, I'm quick to take something that is a, maybe a smaller probability and make it a larger one. And this is just kind of a human thing. I think, um, I think in that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, I think that was a book where the authors were talking about, this is this is just humans, right? This is all of us. We have this, this. Uh, it, it may be biological or who knows, but it's it seems to be kind of hardwired into us to take small probabilities that um, have emotional value and make them into larger. And then to, in some cases, take larger probabilities and make them a lot smart, uh, smaller. And so I, I try to... F- consciously fight that cognitive bias and remind myself that uh, it's unlikely that the opportunity is just going to be gone. It's unlikely that someone's going to preempt me so effectively that when I'm done, it's going to do nothing, right? And so I try to uh, almost like have a dialogue with myself. There's the emotional side, right? And then there's the more analytical side. And so that, that that has helped me just be more patient and understand that uh, it it when it gets done, it will um, it will likely the conditions will be likely very similar to when it began, and it'll have its chance to do well. and um and then, and then also, I would say that uh, maybe maybe an analogy would be um, take speeding, right? If you look at, okay, if you're gonna drive to wherever you're gonna drive at the speed limit of fifty miles an hour, uh, if you speed up to 60 or 65 miles an hour, there's emotional satisfaction there. You feel like you're getting there faster. Mm-hmm. But if you actually run numbers, you're like, eh, "What do I save? I save a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really matter, yeah. right?" Like you're getting there more or less just as quickly. So as far as work and really, again, this is really just, if I'm trying to pursue any goal, I try to remind myself of that effect where so long as I'm making good progress and uh, that that also is gonna have to be quantified to some degree, like take training, right? It's important to track your workouts and see what's happening to make sure you know you're at least moving in the right direction. And so, so long as things are moving in the right direction and so long as we are more or less on on target, or I am more or less on target for my deadline. I, I actively resist that emotion of I'm not going fast enough, because that's where I'll go if I if I don't like really show myself that this is okay, the speed that I'm going at is okay. It, it's fine. It's going to work then I will go there and I'll be like, I need to work on this more. I need to work all weekend, which I tend to do, maybe not all weekend, but I always work on the means. But you know what I mean? I'll just be like, all right, I'm not doing anything today. I'm going to work on this until just 10 p.m. Yeah. That's it. You know what I mean? So yeah. those are some initial thoughts. I don't want to go on and on and on, but.
1: Uh, I think it's, it, you, you brought up a couple of interesting points. like Even even the kind of self-sabotage stories that you create in your head of, of worst case scenarios or how big or how small. I, I, I often tell people too, is like just logically ask yourself, is that really true? Because if you really break things down, it's like you're creating things that probably aren't going to happen realistically. And that's why you yep. start self-sabotaging yourself. Um, and sometimes, you know, reverse engineering, the process can help. And, um, but on the patience note, I think it's cause I'm a very impatient person too. And, and I've come to realize that I think it's, and I'd be interested if you agree, I think it's, it's kind of, uh, it's a double-edged sword in a way, but it's kind of a blessing and a curse. Like I, I think it's it's nice because it pushes me to keep going. Like I have to stop it sometimes, but like you said, like, I have to be like, okay, you're going at the right pace. Slow down. It's okay. Chill. But at the same time, there's people who are, aren't impatient enough. And so they just don't grow. They don't push themselves. They don't push the people around them. And because of that, they're going too slow. Um, do you think like, and that's see,
0: that's the fear though, right? For people like us that it's, we don't want to be that. Mm-hmm. So if, if we're going to err in one direction, it's going to be in the other direction, yeah. right? We're going to err on, uh, over, overburdening ourselves, so to speak, and overreaching, not underburdening or underreaching. And I don't think that's bad, but I think that's going to be to your question.
1: Yeah. 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 And and I think it's, it's one of those things that like, obviously there's times where you can get burnt out or you can go too far, but I mean, you never regret trying too hard, really. Like, yeah. you know, I yeah. think that's the biggest thing. Um, but along the lines of, you know, patience and impatience, is there ever like, what was the thing that allowed you to become more patient or learn how to control that was, do you think like people have to find what their thing is? Like, I know a little bit about your past. Like, I don't even think you were going into the fitness or supplement space or anything like that. Was it when you decided to make that shift and you saw that it was working and that you had this skill or this passion or this, this purpose there that you were like, okay, now I can be patient. Because I can see the long-term plan. I can see that if I am patient, this will work out well. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say initially, no, probably because I I don't remember having these types. What I was just describing is I would say more of a recent thing as Mm -hmm. I've had kids and just more obligations. Whereas at that time, I mean, eventually my, my son arrived, but I was I was working most of the time. I mean, I was like kind of. I would wake up at 6 a.m. I'd go to the gym, uh, go to the office, work all day, go home, and eat some food. Do like 30 minutes of cardio, go back to work. That was Monday through Friday. Maybe sometimes Friday evenings were off, but that wasn't every week. I would work all day Saturday, just kind of morning until at least morning till dinner. Sometimes after dinner, and I would work half days Sunday. And I got into playing golf, so sometimes that was like my other, you know, afternoon or whatever, and and that was pretty much my life for several years. And I didn't take—I don't think I took a vacation in—I don't know—for like four or five years. And uh, and the 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 easiest antidote, my drug of choice for dealing with impatience, is to just work. That's it. Just work. <laughs> just work on the goal, and then I'm happy, and then I'm—I know I'm making progress, and then I can also say that. If it doesn't work out, and again, this is initially when I was building things, and uh, now uh, take Legion or books or whatever. There's a lot of momentum, so um, at this point, it would take it would take I don't know a major economic catastrophe to just delete what's there. But at the time, uh, when I was building things, I was I just. I don't want to fail. I'm the person I I never want to fail because I didn't work hard enough. Mm. Like, I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be the person who fails because they just didn't put in the effort. To me, that's the most pathetic reason to fail. Uh, Failing because it wasn't a good idea. um, Okay. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's actually... The only way to not have that happen is to not even try because a good example of that is in marketing conversion rate optimization. I'm working with a firm. I've been working with them some time and they're good. And we come up with ideas and there are some ideas that... I was certain we're going to work. Like they were so obviously good ideas. Uh, Like we dramatically improved our checkout uh, process. Legion. Legion's old checkout was janky. It was just bad. By by best practices by anyone's standard who knows about building a proper e-commerce checkout, it was bad. We rebuild it. We basically swipe Shopify, which has a really smooth flow that a lot of people are, are are used to now. And it did statistically, it did nothing. Like it was a, I mean, maybe if, if it did do something, it was probably 5% and a 5% increase in checkout rate or less. And I was like, how, how is that? Now the, the hypothesis that we came up with is that although the previous checkout was bad, the checkout rate was actually quite good. It was like high 60s and it's basically impossible to get over like 75. And I I, I learned that later. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I I guess now I see why. That's probably why it didn't. Because once a person starts the checkout, a lot of the people are just committed to finishing it regardless of, of yeah. how ugly it is, right? And um, so my point with just saying that is that like, that was an idea though, that I was like, this is a great idea. I'll bet you we see a 10 or 15% increase, absolute, not even relative in in checkout rates. And uh, nope, it turns out like that's basically impossible to, to hit a checkout rate of like 80% plus, I guess you're Amazon now or something like that. And, and so coming back to just working hard, again, if I come up with an idea, Let's say it's an idea for a book, write the book, launch the book, uh, and then it doesn't meet expectations. It doesn't do as well as uh, I had hoped or maybe it completely flops. Uh, if it's just because the idea didn't resonate, fine. I, that actually doesn't that doesn't really bother me. Uh, uh, but if it were to flop because I just didn't work hard enough, I kind of tried to phone it in and uh, I, I didn't really do it up to the standard that I feel like I should have that is that would, that would, that would just bother me more. Like that's unacceptable to me. And so, you know, I, I, in the beginning, I was just committing as much time as I could, uh, to, to work and and building things, because if it wasn't going to work out, I wanted to make sure it wasn't going to be for the lack of effort. And, and so, so now though you fast forward to where I'm at, I still work a lot. I don't work that much. It's not that I don't want to, or that I couldn't, it's just, that would mean that I would, I don't want to be a derelict dad. I don't want to be just never there and have no relationship with my kids and, and try to tell myself that like, well, I'll, I'll, will be rich. Like, Hey, whatever. You know, they'll they'll have a nice house and they'll have trinkets and things or, or be like, Oh, well, you know, so-and-so didn't even know his dad until he was like 12 and he's okay. Like yeah, the, that's magical thinking. That's, that's, uh, that's talk coming back to these ideas where like if I'm creating, if I were to do that, if I were to create this narrative and I assign a high enough probability to make me want to go with it. Like, yeah, it'll it'll be fine. Well, what am I saying? It will be fine. I'm saying that there's what, at least an 80% chance that it's going to be fine. If I'm not even there for my kids at all. No, no. If I were to go like, look at some data, there's research out there that would immediately disagree with my fake illusion fantasy that I've just created. Right. Yeah. And, so, so now now though with less work, the opportunity cost of my work time has gone up. So I've I've had to care more about priorities and what am I going to work on? And that's helped me with whereas previously I could quote unquote afford to do things that may or may not work and I didn't really have to do very much thinking or analysis if it seemed like a good idea and it wasn't going to cost an inordinate amount of time or money, do it, see what happens, right? But now I've I've isolated. I've found a lot of things that work that I can put my time into, and that that can get me to my bigger strategic goals. And so I'm I'm more uh, protective of my time, so to speak, and I and I'm more just cognizant of like I really should be putting most of my time into these things, even if doing all of these other things would be more fun or more interesting. It's kind of in service of a bigger goal. And, uh, so that has helped as well.
1: Yeah. I think there's, there's a couple of things that I think are really, really important for people to hear in that. And I think, you know, one of them is, is this really what it takes to create a business. And that's something that I appreciate about you is that you openly say I worked every single day of the week for a long time. And and I did the same thing and shit. I would even say for my daughter's like first one and a half years of life, at least that's how it was too. And it it was like, it took me a while, Same here. but I had this, I, 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 I had a conversation with somebody recently about this, about entrepreneurship and about how they, they to, like, it was, it was this idea of like being an entrepreneur so you can have more freedom and flexibility and travel. And I was like, I, like, I hate to tell you this, but I'm just now to a point where I could do that if I didn't have a kid. You know, and I still can yeah. if I take the kid, but like what you're talking about, like if you want to become an entrepreneur, you got to remove that for quite a while because it, it actually takes so much more than people realize on the back end to create
0: and consistently build something big very true, yeah, I mean, for the first couple of years of my son's uh life i i I don't have very many memories with him, which is not something that uh I feel bad about for my sake, and I'm not asking for pity or anything. It's just a fact. And I I probably still would have done it the same way because that period uh, produced a lot and it's gonna mean a lot for his future. And uh, now that he's a bit older, I mean, to be fair at that time, he really just wanted his mom most of the time, but I could have uh, made more of an effort. It just would have taken time, of course. And maybe I should have made a little bit more of an effort, fortunately though, he's eight now and I do still work a lot and there are certainly better dads out there, but I give him time. I give him importance and I, I'm not as, uh, just inaccessible as, as I was then. And, and I think it matters a little bit more that he's older. So I can, I, I totally understand that. And to your point about entrepreneurship, I totally agree. I, I've, I've said this, um, I, ran, I don't know in interviews and here and there on my own podcast when when the topic of entrepreneurship has come up, it's not for everyone, and that's okay. I don't say that like by putting us entrepreneurs up on a pedestal, looking down at the dirty peasants. Like uh, no peasant, you can't come up here. No, it's just it's actually just not for everyone. And there's a lot to be said for having a job that you enjoy that allows you to focus on the work that you're good at. And that you like to do, and that allows you to build a skill set that's going to be commercially valuable and viable for uh, the decades to come. And that's not that a lot of that is changing because of technology and what's happening in the economy. And there's a lot to be said for not having to worry about payroll and not having to worry about inventory issues, unless that's your job, uh, not having to worry about so many of the other things that come with owning a business. And it's not because you, quote unquote, couldn't do it, but no, there, there's, a, there's a trade-off there. And in my opinion, if we're talking about owning a business, um, there the benefits of let's think, let's talk about this idea of, of freedom. Yeah. If you can get to a certain level of financial success and you, you can put enough systems in place and have enough people, you can have more time to, to play around, I guess, than if you had a steady job that, that, that keeps you busy 40 to 50 hours per week. Like you can take more vacation time, so to speak. Uh, but there, and and I'm sure you can relate to this. You're not to to get to that point. You have to be the kind of person who doesn't really get off on not working. You know what I mean? Like you're gonna probably be the person who who defaults to work, who enjoys work, who takes for me like a vacation. Sure, five days. uh, After five days or so, it doesn't matter where I am. I can be in Italy. I can be in France. I can be in beautiful places, whatever. Five days and I could leave. And I'm like, yeah, that was good. You know, a little change up of the routine, looked at the rocks, ate the food. (laughs) Fine. You know, that's it. That's traveling. Cool. And I've done a lot of traveling. I'm just kind of whatever about it at this point. Right. Um, Seven days, I'm now looking forward to coming home. 10 days, I'm like, I want to leave. Yeah. I, I want to get back to my routine. I want to be productive again. I want to have my workout schedule in. I want to eat like an like an adult. I want to stop, you know, just randomly eating in this restaurant here and there. You know, it's just I want to get back to my system, my personal system that works for me. And that is the case with a lot of successful people I know. That said, where I've seen it change is in the case of either. Large amounts of wealth, um, hundreds of millions of dollars net worth type territory, where I've seen people who have worked tremendously hard. I'm thinking of one person. He started at like 16 and he has worked, he's my age, so 20 years of the type of lifestyle that we're talking about. And he's at a point now where, I mean, his net worth is in nine figures. And at some point, he'll probably sell his business for, I don't know, 400 to $900 million, depending on what he wants to do. And, and he now is more interested in just kind of finding other things that interest him. Uh, but it's been 20 years of that. Of really working his ass off and achieving a certain level of success, where he now he can't pretend like money matters anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it, it just doesn't. He can do whatever he wants, right? He made eight figures in the markets last year. It just doesn't matter at this point. Uh, but the I know just as many very successful people who are still just they just default to work. like they they want to have fun. That's more how it has changed, where at one point they did whatever they needed to do to get that financial freedom. But for them, the financial freedom was to only do the things they want to do now. And that means work though, to only work with people they wanna work with, to only work on projects they wanna work on, to only invest in businesses they want to invest in, and that's what they're looking for. And uh, they, they, in a couple of cases, I can think of people who went through the kind of the phase that my buddy's going into right now and then got bored and went back to their like I was happiest, and I felt most excited about my life back when I was working to build my businesses and build my net worth and now that I've done that, and then I tried to take it easy and just live the good life quote unquote uh I mean, in a couple of cases, people have told me like they were even depressed they were just they just didn't they weren't happy, mm-hmm. and they had everything, but they didn't have a game that they wanted to play. And that's really what it comes down to. Right.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think it's that creative process. I was even going to say, when you were, you mentioned that person that was very successful after he sells, he probably will start another company. Right. Oh, or he already partner. says he will. Yeah,
0: he knows. He, he yeah, knows. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, it's a, it's a trait. And I've even, I've had conversations with my wife about this, where she, uh, has talked about like working on Sundays and she's like, we well, don't have to do. And I'm like, no, I definitely don't like things are good, but like, I really want to, because like, I I get this antsy feeling of like, well, it's Sunday sets me up for Monday. And it's like this whole cycle. And it's
0: just, it's what I love to do. And it's that creative process. Um, and that's important. That's, I I would say for entrepreneurship, if somebody is not that way, and I, we don't have to make a, a, a character judgment or a moral judgment. If if it's just, they're just not that way. I know people who are just not that way. And mm-hmm. so do you. And so does everybody listening. They know at least someone who uh, it's not, it's not even that they're, they're just good for nothing. And, you know, they can barely get out of bed in the morning. No, it's just work is, is a, an important part of their life, but it's, it's, it's just, it has very clear boundaries and it serves a, a very, specific purpose, which is usually to just pay the bills, maybe a little bit uh, into the 401k for retirement and slowly grow it over time and retire that, that that kind of approach. And then they have their other things. That's totally fine. But I would say to, to the people who are more of that uh, inclination that I would seriously consider not becoming an entrepreneur because like one of the criteria that I have thrown out there to people just to, again, this is kind of that due diligence before you get into something, right? Is can you consistently work at least 50 hours? And I'm going low here. I really think it probably should be more like 60 or 70, but let's just start with 50. Can you consistently work 50 hours per week indefinitely? Not like, oh, you can muster the, the metal to do it for a week and then you need to take a week off. Like, no, can you just do that forever? basically and uh, again, that's a low number and and that's work too. that's not with the TV on or with social media going or with your phone and you're just kind of quote unquote multitasking and jumping between email. And that's, that's, doesn't have to be deep work. Like, I don't even know if I could do 50 hours of actual true deep work. Yeah. I, and not that I hold myself up as like a paradigm of productivity, uh, but I'm pretty good. I've done a lot of deep work. I've just practiced it a lot over the years, right? Like writing, writing is deep work. Yeah. I'm not sure I could do 50 hours of productive writing work per week. It's probably something around half that. Well, if it's seven Seven days, it's a bit more. But if we're talking, to, let's say just five, I'm good for probably four to five hours of deep work per day. I know that I can do that. If I need to push and go further, I can. But it is more, uh, there's more of a burden to it. Like I feel myself now, I feel the gears turning as opposed to for the first few hours, it's pretty smooth. Right. Um, but we go from the deep work to the light work. You do have to do email. You do have to make phone calls. You do have to coordinate with people, blah, blah, blah. So if you can't work consistently at least 50 hours per week, I would say I would not, that's a red flag as far as starting your own business goes. It's not a red flag as far as being a human goes per se. I mean, maybe a little bit, but that's a different discussion. Um, but as far as starting a business goes, that is that is not, that is uh, it's going to work against you. Let's just put it that way. And then another thing is understand the economics of business, right? So with all the extra bullshit that comes with owning a business, and I don't care what business we're talking about. I mean, and you've probably spoken to a lot of successful business people I, I have. And in every case, there's always the analogy that I use is it's like, Everything feels like it's on fire all the time, yeah. And you're just trying to pick the fires to put out. You're just like scrambling around trying to prevent the whole thing from burning down. And even if that's not reality, that's how it feels. That is just how it feels. And and there is some truth to like that is, that is the reality to some degree, right? There are always problems that need to be solved. Sometimes they are hard to solve, and sometimes they suck resources and whatever. And so to to produce a high enough income to make it worth it, you first need to think about that because if you could get a job and you could make $100,000 a year, and again, not have to worry about all that stuff, just work on what you're good at. And you're only expected to produce in that discipline, that domain. And there's value to to also now you don't have to educate yourself about 19 different things that come with running a business. You just need to get really good at your one thing. Let's say, let's take writing. You, You create content for a business. You just need to get better and better at researching and writing and improve your quality and quantity and your value goes up. If your business doesn't see that and they don't continue to pay you more, go somewhere else because that's a valuable thing. And you could find a lot of individual examples of like, just get really good at this thing and you're gonna be able to make good money and you're gonna be able to make more and more money as time goes on. Your wages don't have to remain stagnant. Now, if we're talking about uh, physical labor, for example, yeah, you only you only can do very simple physical actions so well, and so of course you it's hard to expect the value of that to go way up, especially with automation and AI and whatever, right? Um, so let's say you can get a job hundred thousand dollars a year. If you had a business, how much money would that business have to make for you to make hundred thousand dollars a year? And you know this, but but many people who are not in business they don't realize that the average business, if we're looking at profitability. It's probably around 10 to 15%. That, that's actually considered good in business. Mm-hmm. 10 is okay. 15 is good. 20 plus is great. And you don't really see 20 plus often. You see it maybe in some software companies um, and and digital agencies and you can do it, uh, but Most businesses are going to be, assume, I would say, assume 10%, unless you know for a fact that margins are just higher. Like if you're starting a SaaS company and you know what you're doing on the marketing and you're not going to waste a bunch of money there, sure, you might be able to get 20, but let's just say 10. Okay. So you have 10% profits. And that means that after all of your expenses come out, your cost of goods and your overhead and blah blah blah, there's 10% left for you the owner. And in the beginning, you don't get a salary plus your distributions. Where where is the salary coming from? You get your that's it. That's all there is to pay you is 10% of uh the the revenue. Now, if you take all of the profit out of your business, you're gonna struggle to grow it because what's gonna happen is you're gonna create systems that are gonna get you to a certain level of revenue. And to scale those systems, it often takes investment uh, and if it doesn't, if you find something that 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 uh, is continuing to grow at a certain level of investment, eventually it will taper off, right? Mm-hmm. So you have your systems now that are producing your income. How do you double that income? Something has to happen. You, it's not just going to come from uh, the, the government, although these days maybe it will. Uh, but <laughs> no, something has to happen in the market. You have to make something happen. You have to launch a new product, for example. Great. That's a good way to grow your revenue, depending on where you're at in your business business that costs money. Where does that money come from? It comes from your bottom line. It comes from your profits because that's the only money you have left after all of your expenses to just stay where you're at. Yeah. So, uh, there are different schools of thought on how much money the owner should be pulling out of the business. If he wants to also, or she wants to also maintain good growth, but if we want to be conservative, 50% is a high number. That's high. Um, twenty five or so is and this is going to change based on businesses so if if somebody listening is taking more than that out of their business I'm not saying they're doing it wrong per se but I'm just going with kind of middle of the curve here right um, but even if we're really generous and we say all right you can take fifty percent of your profits, that's yours right and um, you can figure that out so it's going to probably be hard to grow quickly but whatever let's just say that's the case so now let's do some math what does it take to get to $100,000 a year in income given those uh, parameters. Well, now you need $2 million a year in income because you have $200,000 profit and half of it is yours how many businesses make it to $2 million a year in consistent revenue? I mean, forget it. Like you have one year is it's a, it's a small percentage. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it's small. Most businesses fail within the first five years. For example, a lot of them fail within the first two years. Uh, So it's a very small percentage. I would not be surprised if it's, it's, less than 10%, maybe even less than 5% ever even see 1 million in annual revenue. Uh, I'm not sure I'd have to look, but um, that feels about the right range. I might be a little bit off there, but then you go to 2 million and now it gets smaller, 10 million. And so to make $500,000 a year, again, assuming what we just laid out is, is true, that's $10 million a year in sales that's now a very small that's a fraction of 1% of businesses make it to 10 million and then we so we take those base rates right and we apply those now to the the arenas that we've chosen to do. Participate in. So it's not just what does it take for a business to get to 10 million year in revenue. What does it take for a coaching business, for example, to get to 10 million in revenue? What does it take for a supplement business, a a book publishing business? And you can get more granular with that data and understand that hey, you may be in a great place that makes it a lot easier. To get to that, uh, than the average, but it also maybe the other way around, and so understanding the economics, I think, is very important because when people understand that, they're like. Oh yeah, wow, making millions of dollars a year consistently in sales is is uh, maybe I could do it, but that's not as easy as I was thinking. Like I was thinking, hey, if I get my business to like 100k, 200k a year, I could probably take out I probably could take half of that, you know what I mean? And uh, that's not how it works. So, so that's also a discussion that I've had with people And then also for them to think with and assign a value, try to assign a monetary value to the extra bullshit that you are going to have to deal with as an entrepreneur, because that has certainly added to the stress quotient in my life. Like, I guarantee you, part of the reason why I'm no longer as good of a sleeper as I once was is because the stakes are just a lot higher. Like, yeah, you know, I make more money now, my net worth is higher, but unfortunately, the emotional counterbalance like the weight of that is it's just not it's just not very much like it's just bigger problems more problems and more again I, I i'm not trying to pretend like i'm a victim i'm just saying reality right just there's just more stuff on my mind all of the time now than ever before and of course i'm, I'm there are rewards that are associated with that but it, it takes its toll so to speak even though i do a pretty good job managing it. And so you have to assign a monetary value to that. If you could make 100,000 a year in a job and have none of that, or you could own a business and make 100,000 a year and have all of that, why why, why, why would you even bother? You're not gonna have the freedom, right? You're not gonna be able to just walk away from your business and go to, to uh, Indonesia for a month and think you'll still have a business when you, when you come back. A lot of people I, I know who own businesses, they, about two weeks is the point when business things start to, unless they've really put in good systems, things start to go wonky after about two weeks. Um, And, and, and you also remember, you're probably not going to want to do it very much. You're not going to enjoy your trip to Indonesia nearly as much when you know that your business is starting to unravel every Mm -hmm. minute of every day. Right. And so for me, the math is, uh, I I would personally have to make probably three to five times the money as an entrepreneur as I could as an employee for it to probably that's just probably my point of indifference like the point of where now I'm kind of indifferent it's okay I, I could have the extra money and, and you know there are the extra problems that come with that or I could have less money and not have those problems like the the value to that is probably about equal at that point three to five times and people though need to. Work that out for themselves uh, individually, and so yeah, the, the, that's 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 a discussion I've had many times. If you like what I'm doing here on the podcast and elsewhere, definitely check out my health and fitness books, including the number one best-selling weightlifting books for men and women in the world, Bigger, Leaner, Stronger, and Thinner, Leaner, Stronger, as well as the leading flexible dieting cookbook, The Shredded Chef. What do you
1: do personally? Do you, I mean, I've never, and I don't know if you do this, but I've never heard you speak on like journaling or meditation or anything like that, but I'm curious of like reflection work because some of the stuff we talked about just now kind of made me think of like, you know, there was like this, uh, and, and I have nothing wrong with Gary Vee, but there was like a Gary Vee era where entrepreneurship came, became like really, yep. really fucking cool. And everyone then everyone was doing it,
0: which is cool. I yeah, mean, I, I, but I respect Gary Vee. I don't know him and I don't really follow him very much, but I've seen a lot of his stuff. And I'm like, this guy has energy and yeah. he's not giving bad advice.
1: Exactly. Right. And then there's also this aspect of the whole balance thing of like, um, you know, having balance and needing balance and all stuff. And I don't think people, I, I used to always say balance is bullshit, but I I don't think balance is about time because you're never going to balance time period. If you want something yeah. to be, if you want to be the best dad, you have to put all of your time in being a dad. If you want the biggest business, yeah. you have to do that, you know? So, um, but is there ever, Uh, like practices or like what have you done to kind of stay in your own lane so to speak mentally because a lot of what we're talking about isn't the normal thing or people would kind of look down upon working too much to build something or not having this balance or even like what you just talked about shit I mean entrepreneurship does not sound cool or fun at all (laughs) based on what you just talked about right but there's something that
0: like makes you want to do it right exactly and th- but that's that to me is like if somebody just listened to my uh litany of of reasons to not be an entrepreneur and they still want to do it they feel like they're up to the challenge and they're willing to put in the work and then they Understand the economics, and they believe in their business plan, so to speak, and uh, and they still want to do it. Then I think great signs, and and those are all green flags to me. And as far as like self care goes, I, I don't talk about it because I feel like I'm not a good role model in that sense because I don't. I've tried journaling and just got bored with it. I'm like, I'm not getting anything out of this. I'd rather be working. I'm wasting my time. <laughs> uh, meditation to me is is okay. It's just a. Uh, I don't. So, so really what we're talking about, right. Is just not spazzing out for like 10 minutes. Yeah. I mean, really, right. They're breathing exercises. We're not talking about Zen Buddhism meditation, six hours a day, like trying to absorb into the universe or something. Mm -hmm. It's, can you just like chill out and not have 8 million thoughts a second for like 10 minutes? And uh, for whatever reason, I don't have a great explanation for this. That's very easy for me. And again, I don't say that as a brag or, or to try to put anybody else down. It's just, uh, I can relax easily. I, I have good, control over my thoughts, my focus, my attention, maybe the fact that I've done a lot of writing for a long time now and a lot of reading for a long time now, I was always a good student and I was always into studying outside of school. And so it may just be a matter of practice. I've practiced controlling my mind, controlling my attention, uh, and and, in, in some ways, maybe even controlling my impulses to the point where I'm pretty good at it. I can always be better and I'm not perfect. Uh, but with meditation, it was similar to where I just didn't really feel like I was getting anything out of it. I didn't notice any difference in any element of anything. And maybe it was making a difference and I just wasn't aware of it. But if I couldn't Like put my finger on this is why I'm doing this. I'm not going to do it just because everyone's doing it or that's like what you're quote unquote supposed to do. That's not a good reason. I need to know for me why I'm doing it. And so I've done that and was it was just kind of uh, it was a wash. It didn't hurt, but it was not. I didn't see that I was going from let's say uh, even though I tend to be a higher strung person, I wasn't going from like clearly feeling anxiety to feeling calm. Like that would have been oh, cool. That's a great benefit. Like I'm starting yeah. my day with that. You know what I mean? Uh, but there was nothing like that. And I, I did some gratitude journaling for a while, which I didn't mind where I was looking for. I, it was three things that I was anticipating the next day. This would be at night. So three things I was grateful for. Um, very simple. I didn't overthink it. And three things I was looking forward to the next day. And uh, again, I was, uh, I, I just felt like, after doing it for a while and staying committed to it, I didn't care whether I continued to do it or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I didn't notice a, a market improvement in my in my mood, which is generally when I'm in my workflow, I'm generally in a in a good mood. Uh, if if I'm not working, sometimes if I feel like I should be working, I'm going to not be in a very good mood, but, but generally, generally, I'd say I'm pretty, pretty balanced uh, emotionally. And I do tend toward irascibility. Uh, I will say that, um, but not, I don't think to the extreme or to an extreme fault. And so, so that's something that's another example that was just, it just didn't really seem, I again, I'd rather, it didn't take much time, I guess. It just, I didn't notice any benefit from it. I liken it to like cold showers, right? Which I I've done for a long time. And I, and I continue to do, uh, simply because I don't know, I've kind of gotten used to it. And maybe there's, I think there's a little bit of value in it. It's almost like a little bit of a metaphorical, just forcing myself to do something that is uncomfortable. And I understand there are no health benefits. If I were to take like a six minute ice bath every day, they're actually bring down some inflammation levels, or there could be a few things to be said for that, but just, a few minutes in cold water, you know, just raining down on me is not, not going to do anything health-wise. Uh, it has, though, if we're talking about physical effects, it has increased my cold tolerance. That's kind of cool. Like, I do not get cold <laughs> easily since then, and that's kind of useful living in Virginia. Now, I'm moving to Florida, so that is no longer useful. In fact, I, I probably if, if the body has counterbalance, like if I'm now a warmer person, if I run hot now, I'm fucked. It's going yeah. to, it's going to be disgusting. I'm just gonna be sweating literally every day, all day. Um, but, but to the cold showers thing was something that I've continued to do because it continued to make sense to me where even though I didn't quote, I didn't, I couldn't like tell you, Oh, well, here's the before and after mm. like before cold showers, I was the person who couldn't. And then after, no, not at all. But I, I like things that, are, are are high leverage uh, that um, uh, it's I mean ideally you have things that are relatively easy to do that can have big effects and and so this is one of the things that i don't think it has big effects, but because it's at the level of character because it's it's at the level of i'm the type of person who blah that is appealing to me because I think that that level of personal development takes precedence over all more tactical types of things, like uh, how to be more productive and uh, how Mm -hmm. to, how to, how to, how to be a better marketer and, or if we're talking about how to be a better person, like um, we talk about a relationship, um, uh, people research shows that Uh, people who have sex more often have better relationships so much so that the joke is like, fuck, don't fight. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, but above that is more, I think of the book, like the seven habits of highly effective people where it's what type of person you are, your values, uh, your principles, your own precepts, your ideas, your attitudes that drive your behaviors. And in the case of a cold shower, does it really matter? No, but it is just one little indicator that I am the type of person who can force myself to do uncomfortable things. And I don't even have a good reason to, in the case of a cold shower, uh, in in the case of maybe doing work, I don't want to do. I have a reason to, but it's just, I don't allow my uh, desire for comfort to drive my decision-making. So that's why I continue to do it. So that's yeah. maybe an example of something that's kind of trendy that I have maintained.
1: And, and that's, that's one that uh, we're doing actually like a, a challenge. It's a free, completely free daily routine challenge thing. And cold showers are on one. And somebody was like, yeah. well, what's the purpose of like, what are the health benefits? I was like, oh, there's not really any, but yeah. when,
0: when you, you want do you want to yeah. do it though? When you turn no, you
1: it to cold and you don't want to do it, but you still turn the water on cold. Like, it's just that little bit, I don't care if you do it for 30 seconds or three minutes or whatever, like doing that consistently. And, and, and like, I have a similar thought with meditation, in the sense that like, I know people who have anxiety where it like, it helps them for yep. me. It's, it's more about visualization. And like, mm. if I can get quiet and think about one thing, long-term big picture, and then go to my journal and kind of write that out, it gives me ideas to come to my team with and then say like, this is the next step. This is what we're doing. This is the direction we're going. Um, and that, and that,
0: that's a, that's a spin on it. Uh, cause the, when I think of meditation again, I, I stopped looking into it some time ago when I did my little thing with it and was like, okay, I guess mm-hmm. it's just not really a thing for me, but that point of it was, it was like, oh, focus on your breathing or yeah. focus on a body part or scan your body or different things like that. Uh, but how you're using it uh, it would be more appealing to me. Cause they, I do think there's value in that. Yeah.
1: I get antsy when I'm, it's like, okay, like now think about your toe and then think about your heel and then think about your yeah. knee. And they're like going and like that. I can't do it. And
0: some people would say like, oh, but if you're getting antsy, that means that you need to do it. Yeah. Uh, I Touche. Maybe, <laughs> I get it. Maybe. maybe. Um, uh, I, I would say, I would agree again, if, if somebody can't calm their mind down and just relax uh, really, and just kind of chill out, for for 10 minutes then there's certainly value in being able to do that right mm-hmm. um because again there's this point of let's come back to work or really any activity you have to be able to control your attention right you have to be able to put your attention on something and keep it on something yeah. and sometimes for extended periods of time and you can't be flitting all over the place and so i could see meditation helping with that
1: for yeah a yeah 100 percent um I want to use these last little bit of time to run through this over under. So we're going to dive into like, <clears throat> it's just going to be rapid fire. Um, yeah, sure. You don't literally have to say overrated and stop. You can, you know, give your yeah, speed yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but we'll ran, run through a handful of things. And uh, and I want to just get your, whatever comes to mind first. Uh, and these are random topics. So, uh, and, and the reason we're doing this too, just so you know, like we did a couple episodes doing over under people fucking loved it. Like it was like some of the most downloaded people just, and I thought it was fun. I just got to sit there and just, fucking answer, answer, answer. It was really cool. So, um, yeah. All right. So the first one is, uh, the big three compound lifts.
0: Oh, um, you know, I I say who were taught, who who, according to who, because (laughs) if they're not, you can't overrate them. I mean, if you're going to make an argument for overrating them, you would say that, well, maybe if you were to only do those and nothing else, Mm -hmm. like, uh, maybe the Mark Ripito message. And I love rip and, uh, and, but that, I mean, that's his brand. I understand. I think though in from, from that, like kind of purist dogmatic, this is literally all you need. I don't care what your goals are then a bit overrated. Uh, but then of course we have the people who who would say like, well, those exercises are, are not, there's nothing really special about those exercises. You can recreate all the same effects with a bunch of other exercises. Yeah, that's true to some degree, but I would say those exercises are certainly the most efficient way to increase whole body strength and increase whole body muscularity. So in that case, they would be, uh, I'd say those people are underrating them. Yeah, it's
1: funny, cause it was so hard for me to do any of these without saying it depends. So like, like and that's a sign uh, I of- know, I know,
0: I know. It's like the, who, oh, there's a little anecdote. I forget which president, the joke was he was looking for a one-armed uh, economist, somebody who didn't preface everything with on the one hand, Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, but on the other hand, like just tell me one thing. Yeah. Come on, make a stand. Not everything is 50, 50.
1: Yeah. Well, in, in our industry, it's, it's, it's probably a good sign, you know, because, cause you're thinking about it both ways. But, and, and I would agree too. I think that like, there's people that are like, Oh, you want big biceps just do squats. It's like, no, yep. you should do some fucking curls because yes, that's how you're going to Pe- get your big.
0: Yeah. I mean, even, even if you're deadlifting and you're rowing, that may not be enough to get you big biceps. Like exactly. If you really want big biceps. You're probably going to have to do some curls too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Knowing your one rep max,
0: Uh, That's a good one. I would say uh, it's not something I get asked about very often, but if that is like a thing out there that people are very concerned with, overrated for sure. Because unless your programming uses that for, let's say, telling you how much weight to put on the bar, you don't have to ever estimate your one rep max. Certainly don't have to do a, a true one rep max test, which You can do, but increases your risk of injury and it shouldn't be done very often. And it needs to be done appropriately in terms of your programming and like where it falls in a a cycle of training and what you do after uh, and so if though, like, for example, if so if someone's following, let's say it's a guy following my bigger, leaner, stronger, which is double progression, a lot of four to six reps uh, or a woman, uh, following thinner, leaner, stronger, uh, a lot of eight to 10 rep work, double progression. It, they can do really well, never calculating a one rep max, never knowing a one rep max ever. Um, because what they, what they will know is that, the weights are going up over time. They're getting stronger, and of course, the one rep max is going up. But to know it explicitly is for bragging uh, or or for programming. And it, it is useful, like in in my Beyond Bigger, Leaner, Stronger program, which is for intermediate and advanced weightlifters. The primary exercises actually are programmed according to percentage of calculated one rep maxes. Now I'm not asking people to do true one RM tests. These are, these are calculations based on AMRAPs with some heavy weight Mm -hmm. uh, and that's useful. So uh, I think, I think that's my spiel on that.
1: Do you think that the, the value of percentage-based training lowered when RPE was discovered and actually, you know, used in science?
0: I don't actually. I think when used together, I think they're very complementary. And I think though the value of percentage-based training is much higher for intermediate and advanced weightlifters than it is for novices. Novices, people, guys who have yet to gain their first 25 to 30 pounds of muscle, women who have yet to gain about half that, and who have yet to achieve some kind of like novice level strength standards, they... They, sure, they they can they could grab my Beyond Bigger Leaner Stronger book that and do well with that program, but it's unnecessarily complex for them. It also would have m- more volume than they need. They can do really well with double progression, just kind of auto regulating their training uh, and knowing that okay, they're going for that one set of six or two or three sets of six before they add weight to the bar, and that's all they have to care about is just put that weight on the bar. Oh, you got five. All right, cool. You got three sets of five. Great. Can you get six on your first set on your first set next week or in the next workout? If you can, cool. Throw some weight on the bar. Does that progression stick? Great. That's your new weight. Do it again. Oh, it doesn't stick. All right, go for two sets of six. Real simple, right? It doesn't require a spreadsheet. And uh, so that though eventually doesn't work so well. Once you have gained that initial your newbie gains are well behind you, you're pretty big now or you're pretty muscular if uh, to put it in terms that women would more relate with, right? Even though you're not bulky, but like you are not now a frail hundred pound woman, like you have some, some, some muscle mass Mm -hmm. and you've gained some strength. There is a point where that double progression model becomes hard to continue working with because the weights are heavy and how you feel doesn't always correlate well to how well you can perform. Uh, and with a, with a percentage-based system, what it allows you to do is bake progression into it and know that if you can just hit these numbers, you are progressing. Now it's going to be slow. And it's not like in the beginning where you're adding weight every week and then every other week and then every month you might, you know, over the course of, I I talked about this recently over the course of a four month macro cycle of training. Um, I increased my one RMS, by, I'd have to pull up my spreadsheet, but I'm going to guess the total increase was no more than 30 pounds. And that's on that's on bench, overhead, squat, and deadlift. It may have been a little bit more because I was still coming back from home workouts and getting kind of back to where I was. And on the whole, I'm still regaining. I, I'm coming back to my previous PRs, uh, which are about three, four, five, like three plates, one, one rep max on the bench, four on the squat, five on the deadlift. Although actually I think it was a bit less than five. It was high four. On the deadlift, and so I'm still—it's not muscle memory per se. There's no such thing as strength memory, but I'm—I'm st- I'm still working back to something I'd already done, right? Um, and so that was four months of training, and then in the next macro cycle, which is the one that I'm just wrapping up now, uh, it's going to be less than that. It, my bench was a wash, no no one RM gain on the bench, and uh, I did my one RM. I uh, did my AMRAP on on a trap bar deadlift, and it looks like I think I gained about ten pounds. I went from 460 to 470 a uh, one rep, and we'll see how my my squat goes. My overhead press went up by about ten pounds as well. And we'll see how my squat goes. Um, so it, it may be similar. We'll see how my squat will determine, I guess, uh, how 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 it goes. And that was with training disruptions toward the end of this macro cycle from traveling, and then I got COVID, which was I was mildly congested for a couple of days, but I quarantined like a good boy. I, I waited for the symptoms to <laughs> subside, ten day ten day quarantine before I got back in the gym. So uh, and then I got a PCR test to to test uh, negative and just. Because I don't care about it for, me, for my personal health at all. Uh, it did nothing. And so I will never probably care about it ever again. I mean, never really cared once the data came out and I realized how little risk it actually posed to me personally, not to others, just, just me personally. Right. So I didn't was like, okay, I don't have to worry about it for myself. But now that I've had it, Uh, what they're saying is that if you get it again, it's likely to be even less severe than the first time. And it was, it didn't even rate as a cold for me the first time. Um, But it still disrupted my training because I didn't have a home gym to work out in. So I didn't, uh, I I just didn't train for those days. Uh, I didn't bother doing push-ups, or I was like, whatever, I guess I'm taking 10 days off. So then I got back into the groove a couple of weeks to try to get back to it. Um, But so we'll see on that macro cycle. And that's not that's that progress is going to slow down i know once i start getting back toward those previous prs i'm going to be lucky to 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 probably add i don't know 10 to 15 pounds probably per year yeah. to those lifts and then it's going to eventually probably just grind to a halt because I'm not going to be willing to push myself as far as I'll need to go simply because the the, the risk to reward no longer makes sense to me. I, the chances of getting hurt to try to get above those three, four, five numbers for me is just going to go up because my body is not built to be big and strong. Like it's just not, I'm built to be an endurance dude. And I, I have decent muscle building genetics that have made up for some of that. Uh, but I have long legs, long femurs, long arms. Um, and in my body, uh, I, I've always had good cardio, but I've never been particularly strong. I have small bones. I mean, that's just it. I'm not made to be a, a strength guy really. Um, so that's, uh, that's just some context for, for progress and percentage-based training helps me just make sure again, that I'm just inching the, the, yeah. the, the, the the intensity. I'm making things just a little bit harder over time. And that's hard to do with double progression because what will happen is you'll feel really good one day and you'll go in there and you'll get your sits, your set of six or your two sets of six or whatever. And you're like, great progress. And then, um, the following week or the following workout you you add, even if it's just five pounds to the bar, you, let's say you, you first try to go for 10 and you get two or three. And maybe you're not feeling too good that day either, or it's just an off day. It just is what it is, right? You get two or three and you're like, okay, you go, you take the fives off and you replace them with two and a halves, you get two or three and now you're back to your old weight. And it's very easy to get stuck in those ruts if you're just trying to stick with double progression forever. Right? Yeah. And I think like
1: you said bet, like in conjunction, I think they're good together as you get more advanced. Cause I've even had times where actually I actually have a video of me. Maxing out on back squats, and it was like during my knee surgery recovery, like months and months after. And I walk away from the rack saying that was definitely an RPE nine, nine and a half. And I watched the video, and I was like, that was like an RPE seven. Like I I had more in the tank. And I think as you get better, you can keep that form and tension under heavier loads, and sometimes you can push past. You know, and and. if I was using more of a percentage based approach, I would have been able to say like, no, I can keep going. And, but that's also the value of filming, um, your workouts, but,
0: um, all right, a few more. That, that, that's a good point. Uh, That subjective element comes into it as well. That's a very good point. I didn't think of that, but yeah, when you see it on, video and you look at the bar speed you're like it barely even slowed down that was not yeah. anywhere even close it yeah. just felt really hard yeah. because you know maybe i didn't sleep all that great the night before yeah.
1: and once you're beyond what 80 percent, everything feels fucking hard you know at a, a certain point um all right uh email marketing
0: oh it is, it- if, if people, anyone who thinks it's not amazing when done well, underrated. <laughs> it's certainly not. I have not seen it overrated. Yeah. Uh, and, and the thing, though, is doing it well. And many companies do not do it well. Many people do not do it well. And for example, many companies, you never hear from them unless they want to sell you something. That's not doing it well. And it can work. You can make money, but you're just going to have shitty lists. It's going to be low open rates, low click-through rates. Uh, You're going to have sending problems, deliverability problems, I guess would be the term. Because you have this low engagement list or these low engagement lists, a lot of your shit's going to end up in spam. And so uh, what what makes email marketing work is really what makes any sort of... uh, content related marketing work. And that is giving a lot of good content and earning the permission to promote things. It's that kind of permission marketing perspective that works really well. So if you give a lot and and that means that, and people understand it, even if it's they understand it implicitly, maybe they uh, they don't explicitly think like, oh, this person is spending a lot of his time just creating things to help me, but that's the effect because that is the truth. If you are putting a lot of your time into writing good articles or writing good emails, recording good podcasts, creating good videos, and you're promoting those, you're sending those regularly to your people and they get used to hearing from you and they see that it, it is good content and work clearly went into it, Then they start to like you. They start to look forward to your emails. They start to open more and more of your emails, or at least they look at the subject line. Is this something for them? If not, eh, fine, they'll pass. Right, and you have to get to that level with people to make email marketing work to actually start converting a lot of those people into customers. And um, again, not to not to brag, but just just to let people know, well, what, if they're thinking like, well, why should I care what Mike says about email marketing? Um, so I have right now over 500,000 people on my lists. I clean those lists every, I believe we do it every three months. It may be six, but I think it's three once, uh, maybe it, maybe actually, yeah, I believe it's every quarter. Um, and what that means is if you clean your list, you take people that are not engaging at all. So like, I don't remember the exact parameters. I, put it together originally and it's i think it's been refined by the people who do it by now but basically you want to take uh, it's it's usually kind of like the lowest quartile of your list in terms of engagement mm-hmm. and send them an email basically saying hey um, oh i think what what's our email the subject line is was it something i said and it's basically saying like hey you don't really open anything you don't click on anything and if you don't want to hear from me that's totally cool uh, but if i don't hear from you i'm going to have to remove remove you from my list and I, it's a lot it may say something totally different now but that's kind of the yeah. the, the, the gist of it and it, it's not bullshit actually the reason why i do that is not as a marketing gimmick to try to get people to to buy something from me or whatever it's actually because if i keep them on my list then my deliverability rates go down. Uh, ISPs, they that matters. There, there is a relationship between the quality and the health of your list, and you can look at that in terms of engagement. That's what they look look at. Uh, open rates, like in the in the highest quartile, our open rates on average are, and that's a lot of people, right? And on, on a half a million person mm-hmm. list, or different lists uh I, our average open rate is probably over 30 percent that's really good in the highest that's really good right anything in the teens to 20 is like good right yeah. you get into the mid-20s you know you're getting real good you get to above that and that's really good and that then has a rising tide effect because it allows more of my emails to land in inboxes and not spam right yeah. and so so that's a that's a half a million people and it continues to grow and it gets cleaned regularly and um and so i send three to five emails a week it's mostly content some of them are content in emails shorter just maybe 200 300 words you can read it learn something get some inspiration some of them that we have a newsletter that goes out every week which is here's the new stuff over at the blog here's the new stuff on the podcast uh and we have let's see what else um yeah so it's it's just it's a combination of those things really but it's a lot of content and so people um, there there's often like after I've gone through a couple of weeks, there's usually something for a lot of people in there. Right. And then that allows me to, I've earned the, the, the permission of many of my subscribers to promote aggressively when I have a sale, for yeah. example. So like if I have a, a big sale and uh, I may email, I may email literally nine times in like five days. Um, and sure, I get more unsubscribes and some people tell me to fuck off and die and stop emailing them and whatever, that's fine. <laughs> but, but I don't get much of that. A lot of people are okay with it because they, there's enough value being on my list. And also a lot of people they're like, oh, cool. That's on sale. Great. Yeah. I want that. I wanted to get that anyway. Yeah. And, and so as a result of, uh, what is a pretty simple system, I mean, we Legion does millions of dollars a year, a year in sales from email marketing. So that's where I'm coming from. Uh, my email marketing of, of course can be better, but we have pretty good systems in place. That would also include good auto responders that share some of your best emails right up front. So things that, um, people really have engaged well with, if we were starting from a simple, just, uh, Kind of blank, blank slate, get people on, have an introductory email, um, invite them to ask questions. That's one of the first things that the outer responder does. It's like it's an email from my email address, just saying, hey, do you have any questions? Hit reply, let me know. You'll hear back from me. You'll get an answer, right? That is tremendously powerful psychologically. It's very helpful. It also, uh, by starting that discussion, by getting them to send me an email, now my deliverability with them. Skyrockets, yeah, because now it's recognized. Like, oh, they're actually talking to this guy, right? So when an email comes from Mike at for Life or whatever, uh, it's going to hit their inbox, and there's value in that. And um, and then building that AR out with again emails that have really done well, and uh, there's some other strategic thoughts that that go into building that out. But that's a very simple way to start building something that by the end of somebody hits your list and they're going to get, let's just say it's three emails. It's going to be every other day. And those emails are an invitation to talk to you, ask you questions. So right away you get them engaged. And then you have a couple of, let's say really good content emails that you just know have performed really well. Like really you got a lot of good feedback and people are forwarding them around. Um, Then if you just load those, and front end that, then you've just created a really good first impression with your subscribers. So there's so many things you can do with email marketing. Uh, and it's, 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 I don't think it's ever going to go away because email would have to go away. Like what's going to replace email. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, telepathy brain chip. Telepathy, <laughs> I don't know man, until there's that, you know, but don't worry, that'll be a Facebook chip. And there's going to be, then your your <laughs> the advertising is going to be, uh, resonating in your skull. So, <laughs> uh,
1: I think that's that's the perfect one to end on but for people listening every like that was probably the most valuable snippet of business information this entire podcast because i think email marketing is extremely underrated and no matter what scale your business at you can value from what he just said and do it exactly how he does it because my list is not nearly as big as yours however i do the same exact cleanup process i do the same exact autoresponder process i have the same exact philosophy of giving free value and then when i have something to promote Every single day we're actually promoting it because people are willing to accept it because I don't annoy them every single week year round. But um and I'm subscribed to you guys' list, so I know that that's true and I get those emails. But um no, that was that was great, man. I think that's perfect info. And I think that uh I'm glad we went the route of business and stuff because people don't hear you specifically talk about it enough. And it's always interesting to hear when we see big businesses like what's going on in the person's head behind the scenes that doesn't do a lot of business coaching masterminds, stuff like that in the back end. So, um, thank you for, for sharing all that dude. And, uh, um, I mean, I, I have your guys's links all over my shit cause obviously I'm, I'm on the team, but uh, if you want to share where to find everything you do that this would be the time to plug it.
0: Yeah. 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 again, I appreciate the opportunity. It's, it's fun for me too, to talk about this stuff. It's uh, sometimes can be more fun than recording a monologue podcast on something I've already, you know, I, I'm doing it in service of my listenership because I know it's a question that I should put this out there. But sometimes those are a bit of a slog, honestly. Yeah. I've already like written about it, and I, I don't really care to go through a whole, but but I do it anyway. So um LegionAthletics.com. I mean, that's really where every. People can find I have books, and uh, the books are pretty comprehensive, and I, I update them regularly. I'm working on another round of updates actually to kind of my flagship books for men, women, bigger, leaner, stronger, and thinner, stronger. And they're not expensive. Uh, I think the digitals are like $8 or something. And uh, of course, there are supplements. You can find a lot of articles at the blog. I've written personally probably well over a thousand. And I have a couple of people now who write with me, not under my name, under their names, but we have like a, now it's a it's a collective effort. So there's even more stuff going up on the blog. Uh, and if somebody has a question on on pretty much anything, I'll, I'll bet you if they just search it, they'll probably find something that one of us has written. Uh, the podcast, uh, my own podcast, Muscle for Life. Um, you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts or you can check it out on the website. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of my online hub Love it. I'll link all that in the show notes. Um,
1: Yeah, man. Once again, thank you for the time.
0: Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and found it interesting and helpful. And if you did and you don't mind doing me a favor, please do leave a quick review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to me from in whichever app you're listening to me in, because that not only convinces people that they should check out the show, it also increases search visibility and thus it helps more people find their way to me and learn how to get fitter, leaner, stronger, healthier, and happier as well. And of course, if you want to be notified when the next episode goes live, then simply subscribe to the podcast and you won't miss out on any new stuff. And if you didn't like something about the show, please do shoot me an email at mike at muscleforlife.com, just muscleforlife.com, and share your thoughts on how I can do this better. I read everything myself, and I'm always looking for constructive feedback, even if it is criticism. I'm open to it. And of course, you can email me if you have positive feedback as well, or if you have questions really relating to anything that you think I could help you with. Definitely send me an email. That is the best way to get a hold of me, Mike at MusclefulLife.com. And that's it. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope to hear from you soon.